0: All right, just follow me for a little bit. I don't know if you've ever had this experience or not, but try to imagine yourself driving down the road. It's a hot summer day, and so you've got the windows. You've got your best friend beside you. You've got your windows halfway down because to go all the way down would just be like having a hair dryer on your face, and that's not fun. So you halfway just to get the illusion of being outside, right? Um, you turn on the radio. It's one of those days. The radio's loud, and one of your favorite songs have come on. And you start singing to the top of your lungs. You're just having a great time. Then when all of a sudden your friend suddenly stops, turns their head to you with an expression somewhere between amusement and disgust, and they say, what did you just say? And all of a sudden your confidence plummets. And you feel that this best friend of a song that's been with you for many, many years has betrayed you. And you say something to the effect of, I left my brains down in Africa. <laughs> They're like, I blessed the rains. They're like, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's the same. Like, we can get, okay. Flip the station. This conversation's over. This friendship's done. Um, or maybe you've heard someone hear the, hit me with your pet shark. dun Hit me with, like, no, no, it's not what it says. Or you're in the 90s and you hear, then I saw her face, dun, 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 dun. Now I'm gonna leave her, dun, dun, dun. Like, I don't think you quite got the message of that song. No. Or, let's say, you know, you've housebroken several dogs over the course of your life, and you've raised several children. And so it makes perfect sense to you to say, that was just a dream, that's pee in the corner. That's pee in the spot, light. Like, uh, words are important. (laughs) They change the way we perceive the world, and they can guide our actions. One of the stories I remember about that was when I was a child, we had a family reunion, and it had grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, the whole shebang. And next to my grandfather's Lazy Boy was this little triangle game with, like, golf tees in it, okay? I learned later that that's actually called Peg Solitaire, but everyone else just knows it as the game at Cracker Barrel, okay? Okay? So I take this peg solitaire, and I ask an aunt or uncle, I'm like, how do you play this game? And they're, Robbie, you're too young. And if you know me, you know that that's a challenge to me. Don't tell me I'm too young. I'll, we're going we're gonna to have words. Um, so that's automatically a challenge of I'm going to learn how to play it. What are the rules? Tell me how to play. I'm like, well, no, I mean, it, you're too young. You, well, okay, so you, you take the pegs, and, and you, you jump on it. Okay, there you go. Okay. I'm like, okay, you jump on it, fine. Okay, so I get out of sight, out of mind, and then I wait till my six is clear. Take that triangle game, put it on the floor, and you know what happens. Boom! And suddenly I'm whisked away by aunts and uncles. Rob, how could you? How could you destroy your papa's game? What were you thinking? What do you think I said? She said, jump on it. That's what I did. That's what I was thinking. Okay? so. Words are important. They change the way we perceive the world, and they can sometimes guide our actions. Now, if the word that we have in our head has a bad definition or we don't understand that word, then the level of our error will determine the level of the misguided nature of our actions. Does that make sense? If we don't know what it means, then we're going to do something to the same level of that, of that error. Now, one of the things that can cause this is when we use words too often. Can you think of words we use here in church perhaps that we use so often that we take for granted their meaning? I know I can think of several that I know, or I think I know, until you ask me to define it. Let's take one, for instance, say glory. Rob, glory, go. Uh, glory's the, the, the lines that come out of the good guys on my kids' Sunday school papers. Yeah, it's the, you know, Isaiah shines with lines, and you know, the halo, the little white lines, that's, that's glory. It's the light stuff, shining. Yeah, Yeah, I know what glory is. Next. Hmm, don't really think you know what glory is. Now, George asked me today to speak on the idea of worship, and I imagine he did that for two reasons. One, spoiler alert, it's one of our purposes. It's what we were born to do. It's what we were designed to do. Okay. second is because that word easily falls into that category where we use it so often, but we rarely understand the whole picture of what exactly worship means, because worship comes up over and over again throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, you might even call it one of the main themes of the Bible. The Bible is about the worship of God. And if we're not careful, it becomes one of those words where we lose what it means, like a piece of furniture in a room that we walk into all the time, but we don't see it anymore. Or like that item in the fridge that you know for a scientific fact had to have expired at least three years ago. But when you open the doors, you don't even see it anymore. Despite the fact that it's right next to your hand, tucked neatly in that little side pocket, you know that jar of pickles that I'm talking about. It's bad. But you don't see it when you open the door anymore. Now, we use words like glory or worship or praise with only a general understanding of what they mean. And then if we want to feel really spiritual or we want to We string them together as if that makes us either more spiritual or we can understand what they mean. We say, all for the praise of his glory. Or I'm going to bring a sacrifice of praise in here this morning, hallelujah. Do you know what you just said? I don't think you do. Now, most of you know that I was a high school choir director for the last 13 years. Um, And earlier in my career, I was a middle school choir director. And this particular instance, I had a class of 7th and 8th grade boys. So, <laughs> and we're working for a Christmas concert. And it was a terrible song because it's the only kind of music that's available to middle school boys. And in the middle of this terrible song is a Latin phrase, Gloria in excelsis Deo. And being a good Christian teacher, I want to hit that with an opportunity to share the gospel. And I say, all right, class, tell me what Gloria in excelsis Deo means. And I remember right here on the front row, there's a boy who's this awesome mixture of awkward and cool he thinks he's cool, but he doesn't realize that his hands are twice the size that they should be. His arms are long, his head has not grown up to the proportion of his teeth yet. They're just these seventh and eighth grade boys. They're just mutants, really. It's just like <laughs> And so, I look at this class of And I say, Gloria Nick Chelsea Steo, what does it mean? And the student says, I don't know, Mr. Bannock, but it sounds provocative. See, <laughs> so, Do you know what provocative means? He goes, no, but I heard it on a commercial. <laughs> okay, so what you're telling me is that you've taken a phrase that you have no idea what it means and you're defining it by using a word that you don't know what it means. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I guess so. Good luck in life, my friend. Good luck in life. So I didn't realize it at the time, but I had done the same thing that Ryan was doing with the word worship. And it wasn't until I had read Job 1.20 that I finally realized that I had no idea what worship was. So to kind of set the stage for Job, you know the story of Job, or at least Satan has come, and he said, Job is the most greatest man in the East. He's blessed to be on all proportions. This is an agrarian society, and so your value is in your, your livestock, your cattle, your servants, your slaves. You know, this is your value system. And Satan says, you know, he'll curse you to your face if you take those things away. And he goes, you've had this hedge of protection around him. Take that away, and I bet he'll curse you to your face. God says, go, go for it. He said, you can touch his stuff, but don't touch him. It's like, okay. Um, and so Job is sitting there. He's the kind of guy who probably has a high school named after him. He's the greatest man in the East. He is the thing. And you have a servant that comes to Job one day and says, Job, I've got terrible news. He says, three bands of marauders have come together and come, and they've taken all of your cattle, and they've killed all of your servants, and only I, have escaped to tell you. And you see the strategy of Satan here because he doesn't just let that lie. He says, while he was yet speaking, another person came and said, Job, over here on this side, someone came and took all of your sheep and they killed all of your servants and only I have escaped to tell you. One pillar, two pillars of his whole life, his fortune, his livelihood, gone. And while he was yet speaking, another person came and says, Job, you know how all your kids like to gather at your oldest house? Yeah, for dinner? He said, well, a great wind came and it knocked down your house and it killed all of your children inside. Only I escaped to tell you. Another pillar, gone. And then it says the most puzzling thing. It says Job shaved his head, say so he tore his clothes. He bowed down and he worshiped. And I knew when I read that I had no earthly idea what worship meant. I still can't get there in a lot of ways. But what I want to do this morning is I want to break apart worship for us. And I have to apologize at the outset because this is like a series worth of material that's condensed down into like 30 minutes. Okay, so I'm going to go an inch deep and a mile wide. And that's normally not my style, but hey, this is what we got. Worship. So it's going to carry the what worship is, what worship is not, the who, what, when, where, how, why, all in one. So you can take any one of these points and you can say There's, there is a mine inside that. You can go deeper inside that. So if you hit one of those that are really rocking your world, come up and talk to me. Send me an email. Um, And let's talk about it, as I love going deeper into worship and finding out just the jewels in Scripture that God has for us. But what I want to do today first, I want to take a look at the word worship. Because just like the word love, worship is a pretty general word. I can say, I love a cheeseburger, and I love my wife. But those are not the same kinds of love, are they? But we have one word for it. I love cheeseburgers. Okay? Okay same thing for worship. We have the word worship, but a lot of words have gone into that word. We have Greek words, we have Hebrew words, and we just say the word worship. Let me define worship for you in terms of it comes from the Anglo- Anglo-Saxon contraction of worthship, And essentially what it boils down to is we need to ascribe supreme worth to something. Ascribing worth to something. Okay. It's good. It's pretty general, but it, it gets us in the ballpark. Um, now, the two examples that we have of, like, the old-time use of the word worship is, comes from, first off, our wedding vows, old-school wedding vows. With this ring, I thee wed, and with my body, I thee worship. What are you saying in that? You're saying, as a husband, you're saying that my wife now has supreme value in the sole person who is worthy of that relationship. That no one else can have that position that I am giving that value to my wife for. Does that make sense? The other example comes from uh, sort of colonial England when you have a citizen of supreme value. When you have a citizen of supreme value, you call him your worship, the mayor. Okay? Now, we even brought that over into the States for a little bit. But then it, it started to smell like English society, knighthood, and hierarchies, and all that. We didn't like that. So we took down your worship to your honor. And we still use that in our judiciary system to this day. Um, so what I want to get to, the two Greek words that I want to focus in on um, that go into this word is one word is called proskuneo. Proskuneo is a word that was in the Greek that literally meant to kiss the ground or to bow down. It was uh, used, let me kind of go through, fly through some examples really quick. In the book, book of Esther, Mordecai would not bow before Haman. In Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow before the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A leper approaches Jesus in Matthew 8. He bows before Jesus and asks him if he's willing to heal him. In Matthew chapter 4, in the temptation, Satan asks Jesus to, I will give all the kingdom of this world to you if you'll just just bow. Just bow and worship. Okay? Something to note here inside this word, all of these acts of worship are physical. They are physical demonstrations of worship, of deference, of um, reverence. It's a bowing down, putting yourself down, making someone else higher by default. The second word we have is Latreia. Latreia um, is better translated as service. We have in Luke chapter 2, 36 and 37 that Anna, or Anna, since we're in the days of Frozen, Anna served day and night with fastings and prayers in the temple. Romans 12, 1, present our bodies a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service, our reasonable Latreia. Interesting thing about that, it's, um, reasonable is actually the word logikos, is where we get the word logical, of that Christ has sacrificed himself to you, so your no-duh reasonable service is your life is continually sacrificed for him because he sacrificed it for you. It is your logical service. It's not, thanks Jesus for salvation, I'm going to go over here and do whatever I want, which happens to be in rebellion to you and your kingdom. It's not what it it's not what it was meant to do. The best example, um, let's see, Joshua 24, 15. You can even help me with this. It's on every Lifeway Christian store in the country. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Okay? Interesting thing is that in Arabic, it's actually translated worship. As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. It's continual. The best example that ties these two words together is from Matthew 4, back in the temptation at 10. Now you see, Satan has gone through all these ways to get Jesus to worship him. At first he says, if you're the son of God, then turn these stones to bread. Uh, Okay, what's wrong with that? He's been fasting 40 days. He's hungry. What would be the harm in that? Well, to value material things over the will of the father would be to worship materialism. And so Satan's like, I've got you. You're worshiping my system. Or how about this? He didn't take the bait on that one. How about this? I want you to go to the the temple. I want you to throw yourself off the highest wall. And the scripture says that the angels, that God will give angels charge over you and you won't even stump your toe. You'll be protected. So show me this big, awesome, miraculous jump off the temple. Everyone will see and they'll be like, oh, Jesus, you're so cool. What would be that? What's What's the problem in that? It would show everyone who he is. Well, when you force God into a corner and back him into a corner and force his hand, aren't you sort of playing God of God? Hmm, that sounds a lot like what he got thrown out of heaven for in the first place, doesn't it? And then Satan strips away all the, the games and he says, okay, okay, okay. Look at all the kingdoms of the world. Did he look at South America, North America, Incas, Aztecs, cultures that were sacrificing people by the day? They he say, all of this I'll give to you right now? If you'll just tip your hat. If you'll just bow, if you'll just worship. And I'm sure Jesus, that was the most tempting of all. Because he's like, No, I'm not gonna have you give me the world. I'm gonna pry it from your cold, dead fingers, and I'm gonna ram those words down your throat. Because he knew it was coming. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to the cross for it, and I'll have it all. Not gonna, I'm not gonna take the world at your hands. So Jesus replies, get thee hence, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship, you shall proskuneo the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou Latreia. He uses both of them in the same sentence. Now, why is it important to know all these words? Well, they funnel together into that one word worship, but just because words are parallel does not mean they're identical. Just because words are parallel does not mean they're identical. Now, let's go ahead and go into what worship is. Worship is active. It is a declaration by response. It is active. It actively declares God's worth. You know, Revelations 5 uh, gives us a glimpse into the throne room. Here's this climactic scene where um, no one knows who is worthy. Like, there's no one appears worthy to open the seal, to open the scrolls of heaven. This is the deed to the earth. This is the way and the highway in which God's redemptive justice and mercy, where everything is made right. This is the way that it happens when you open the seal, and no one can open it because no one's worthy. And then when Jesus steps forward, all these creatures that we don't even have comprehension of, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they have one word that starts off their praise, and it says, worthy. It actively declares God's worth. Second thing it declares is God's goodness. Psalm 31, 19 says, How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. Or Psalm 145.7 in the NIV says, they celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Also, worship celebrates who God is. Now that might seem self-explanatory at first, but it's not. Celebrating God for who he is is Job worship. Put it this way. um, It's usually confused with the next point, which is celebrate God for what he's done. This is not that. This is celebrate God for who he is. That means, were all the blessings of your life removed, would you still worship? Are you worshiping God with strings attached? As long as you bless me with X, Y, and Z, then I'll worship you. But if you take those things away, I don't think I'm gonna worship. Let me tell you something, is that God's worthiness of worship did not change, regardless of our circumstances. Were all the blessings of our life removed, he is still king of the universe, and do you bow your knee to the rightful king? just because we have blessings, how easy it is in our hearts. I know I, I, I struggle with this, of if my blessings were removed, I would have an infinitely harder time bowing the knee to God. That's just something, I'm, something that we all probably struggle with. Now, worship also celebrates what God has done. Mary put these together perfectly in the Magnificat. Luke one forty nine says, for the mighty one has done great things for me, And holy is his name. She combines them, who he is and what he's done. Now, worship is also done by sacrifice. And we kind of steer away from that word in today's culture because it's very Old Testament. Um, Let me kind of break down for you the difference between Old Testament sacrifice and New Testament. Why did they sacrifice in the Old Testament? Well, I'll say it in a nutshell. It was to keep God's holiness at bay. When God establishes the Mosaic Covenant with Moses, he says, there's something I need you to know first off, right out of the gates, I am holy. And you have no idea what that means. It means that I am perfect in every way, and every molecule of your body, soul, heart, mind. It is against me. There is rebellion in your core. But I love you and I've got a plan. I'm gonna take care of it. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna set up an altar And because you have sin in between you and me, there is an unbridgeable gulf between us. I cannot be in the presence of sin. I have to eradicate sin or I'm no longer just. Does that make sense? God has to hate sin or he's no longer just. If he could just wipe sin or sweep sin under the rug and say, forget about it. He's no longer just. And if he's no longer just, he's no longer good. If he's no longer good, he's no longer God. And so he says, I have to kill sin. I have to destroy it but what I'm gonna do is you're gonna take an innocent animal, you're gonna shed its blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And he says, when you've shed that blood, well, I will see that blood, and it will be like a Band-Aid, if you will, it will be a temporary fix until I can get the perfect sacrifice in there, and thank God we don't have to make sacrifices for sin anymore, because Jesus in Hebrews says that he has laid the perfect sacrifice once and for all. I sometimes wonder what it would be like if God did require sacrifice for sin. He says, Rob, next time you lie, I want you to go burn your car. Okay, uh, next time you are prideful, I want you to go give away every pair of shoes that you own. I wonder if my life would look a little different. That's what they had to do, sin offerings, okay? Now, that wasn't the only reason they sacrificed. They also sacrificed out of blessing, out of love, out of faith, and out of thankfulness. In Genesis 14, 20, um, this is where Abraham has met Melchizedek on the road after he has like, done this heroic rescuing of lot after his kidnapping and he meets a priest of the most high god and genesis 14 20 said and blessed be the god most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and so abraham gave him a tenth of all he gave it out of love out of blessing and thankfulness another thing that worship is worship is costly and it demonstrates our love. Um, in 2 Samuel 24, we have a story of David, where David has sinned, and he's done a census of the people, and God has said not to, and then there's this plague that's sweeping through, and God says, you need to go, you need to go sacrifice on this place, on this altar, to stop the plague, because that's where the angel is, and so David comes down there, and I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's like Arunia, Okay, so this is his threshing floor. And it says, I need to buy this threshing floor and make sacrifices to stop this plague. And says, no, Lord, no, king, it's yours. It's yours. Just just take it. I want this plague to stop too. David says, absolutely not. He says, I will not offer burnt sacrifices and offerings to God, which cost me nothing. I will not give cheap worship to my God. Another phrase that we use a lot is sacrifice of praise. We're going to bring a sacrifice of praise this morning. Hmm. I've only encountered that a few times in my life, and it's not pretty. Because usually it's born out of the dark night of the soul. It's Job kind of worship. After all, the blessings have been stripped and removed. And you're there in the dark, bawling your eyes out. And you have the choice whether to worship God or not. I have a lady in my home church this last year who said I need you to pray for a friend of mine. Said she has an only son, 28 years old, moved off, a non-believer, and he just was killed in a hiking accident a couple of weeks ago. And he says the mother has just come around and says I need prayer for strength to offer a sacrifice of praise this week. She had to sacrifice everything just to get those words across her lips. Another story was a boy named Jeremiah, a friend of a friend of mine who's just recently died of cancer. He's 18 years old. He's one of like 13 children, but he's the oldest, has ministries, hard, uh, solid believer, and his parents are posting things on Facebook like, praise the Lord that Jeremiah is no longer suffering, that God has overcome death, and we will see you in a couple of minutes. And I wonder how many tears it took to punch those keys. Praise God that my son has died sacrifice of praise is not a phrase to be taken lightly. It's the hardest kind of worship there is. Hebrews 13 gives us hope, though. Hebrews 13, 15 and 16 says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Did you catch the through him, then? Through him we can offer up a sacrifice of praise. Now, John 16, 13, 1633 tells us why it says these things I've spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace because in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You say, Jesus, the world has taken this from me. The world has kicked me. And Jesus says, I know. And I beat him. I'm going to give it back. You got to wait for the wait for the conclusion of the story. Gee, whatever the world has taken from you, God is going to give it back and he's going to give it back with interest because he is a good God. He sees you, he knows you, he loves you. Amen? He's gonna give it back, and that should give us hope. So we can say rightly that inside worship is a restoring of proper focus. It's a turning, and it turns our affections, it turns our minds, it turns our hearts. Let me give you two definitions of worship. Here's a working definition by a man named Bruce Leafblad. Isn't that an awesome name? Leafblad, Leafblad. So he says, worship is communion with God in which believers by grace center their minds, attention, and their hearts affection on the Lord. Humbly glorifying God in response to his greatness and his word. I like that because it combines the emotional with the cognitive. Or another one by William Temple says, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness. It is the nourishment of mind with his truth. The purifying of imagination by his beauty. It is the opening of the heart to his love. The surrender of will to his purpose. All of this gathered up in adoration. The most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. That's worship. So now that we have a fairly tight perimeter around what worship is, let me kind of go ahead and go, and go quickly through what worship is not. What worship is not. It's not passive. It's done. It's not watched. And I know that's hard in our American Idol uh, generation. We come into service, and we've got the lights, we've got the sound, and we've got the songs. It's easy to observe and watch the show, is it not? When worship is not about what we receive, worship is about how we give, how we focus. I always get a little tentative when I think after a worship service, like, man, I, don't, I didn't really get much out of that worship service. My next question is, did God? Because that's the focus. Did you give God your heart's affections? Did you give God your mind? Did you give God a bowing of the body? Did you raise your hands? The psalm says it, people. Lift up your hands and give praise and glory to his name. It's physical. It's emotional. It's cognitive. We worship with our heart, soul, mind. Okay? Worship is not a feeling or a mood. Now, I'll put a disclaimer here. Worship is emotional, and it is cognitive, and it is physical. It's all-encompassing. Like, expressing love to a friend or a spouse, if I told Becca, honey, I love you, with all the emotion I could muster, but every action after that would be in direct contradiction to what I just said, which one is true? Honey, I love you, doesn't mean. The title of the sermon, by the way, is from Aerosmith. Talk is cheap. Shut up and dance. Show me. That's worship. Worship is active. Worship is not... I'll say it this way, worship without emotion becomes a drudgery, whereas worship without the mind becomes a mockery of what it's supposed to be. And it's dangerous to be led by emotions because emotions are supposed to undergird truth. It's not all about the emotions. Emotions accompany God's truth. I think Satan has been waiting for this generation a long time because our marketing industry knows that emotions are easy to manipulate. And if I can get a people that are easily led by their emotions, then I can get them to do whatever I want. It's a lot harder to manipulate manipulate knowledge of what you know to be true. Feelings, those are easy to manipulate. Feelings undergird truth. They don't supplant it. Worship is not just singing. Just singing, that's called praise. Now, praise is inside worship, but Praise does not make up the whole. Does that make sense? Um, Just because two words are parallel does not mean they're identical. Just because two words are parallel does not mean they're identical. Worship is not to be approached lightly. Beware of nonchalant or careless worship. You will never see God lackadaisical or casual about his worship. And I often wonder, like, why? Like, why can't God just be more chill? Why do you have to like consume Nadab and Abihu when they offered strange fire? It's like, it's fire, God. Like, why do you have to take it so seriously? Because we have no idea what holiness is, and we have no idea the level of our sin. That's it in a nutshell. Because you don't understand. Worship is not an event, it is a lifestyle. Can you think of a time in scripture where God looks down at Israel or any other group of people and he says, hey, people, do something. Worship something. You're not doing anything. You're just sitting there. Worship something. No. He says, I've taken you out of Egypt. I've parted the Red Sea. I need five minutes to give Moses the tablets. And they come down and they say, hark, I hear the sound of battle. It wasn't the sound of battle. It was the sound of idolatrous worship. And they come down and there's a golden calf already right after the Red Sea. And you can hear God like literally, he's like five minutes. Can you not keep your focus on me for five minutes without turning away to worship something else? We can't stop worshiping. Worship is not an event. It is what we do all the time. Your life is your worship. This should not be an abrogation of your week. It should be a continuation of your week where we gather together as a family and praise. Worship is not an event that you go to or come to on Sunday morning. It is the rest of your life. It is what happens outside of these doors is your worship. John Calvin said it best when he says, the human soul is a perpetual idol factory. Of course, he said it in Latin, so it sounded a lot smarter. But Now, I define worship really quick as the perpetually recouping, I'm sorry, recooing, that's not even a word. The act of worship is a perpetually recurring coup whereby we throw down our idols and reassert the lordship of the rightful king of the universe. We align ourselves with what is true. Now let's go into why. Why should we worship? Worship brings God glory and us direction and purpose. We get that? Now, I don't mean to be consumer because a lot of times we worship and we say, what's in it for me? Well, actually, there is something in it for you because God's worship realigns you with the truth of the universe. It gives God glory, you know, the little white lines, but it also, no, you want a definition of, of glory? It's awesome. I got it for you. Glory is the outward display of God's inward perfection. That's, that was for free, by the way. You can take that. Um, worship brings God glory and gives us direction and and purpose. In other words, when we worship and we align ourselves with the truth, we become more like Christ by practicing being in his presence. It is what we were born to do. Any of you were raised Presbyterian, you probably spent a lot of time under the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where the question is, what is the chief end of man? And the response is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we are always worshiping something. Another reason is why is it is due him. Psalm 96, 7, and 8 says, Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Now we can replace that concept of do with owe, and it still stands true. But that kind of rubs us a little, little more, doesn't it? You owe him your worship. You owe him your praise. Like, ugh. I don't want to owe anyone anything, okay? I'm a free, free spirit, not in debt. Um, how's, I'm a Lord of the Rings kind of geek, so a lot of my quotes and phrases come from Lord of the Rings. I want to share one with you. This is for free too. Um, there's this one scene in Fellowship of the Ring where you have like you know the council and you've got Legolas and Boromir and Boromir's whining like a baby and Legolas all of a sudden stands up and he says, this is no mere ranger. This is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. You owe him your allegiance. And Boromir's like, ugh, I don't owe him anything. Gondor doesn't have a king. Gondor doesn't need a king. We can do this on our own. But he says, you owe him your allegiance. How's this phrase? This is Jesus Christ, son of the most high God, heir to the throne of the universe. You owe him your worship. Boom. Yep. How dare we bow the knee to something else? Revelation chapter 5 13 and 14 says and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the sea and on the sea and all things in them I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped Now how do we worship? Well, art and heart it is very important never to marry the heart of worship with the art of worship. Like church and state, family and business, gas stations and restaurants, when the lines are not clearly marked, it gets messy really quick. The content versus the context. We must always be able to draw the line between the content of worship and the context because here's the thing the content. Never changes its context. Never stays the same. I'm a bad person to talk to when you want to talk about the traditional versus contemporary worship wars, because to me it's a really shallow. It's a shallow thing. I'm a choir director. I could bring pieces written in the 1500s that would make you weep for beauty. I could bring pieces that were written yesterday. So the context really doesn't matter to me. Give me an organ. Give me a piano. Give me an orchestra. Give me a choir. Give me Church of Christ. Nothing. Give me the words of worship. And I will worship. Put it in a Chris Tomlin song, great. Put it in a Mighty Fortresses, our God, great. Give me the words, and I'll worship. Context is subservient to the content. So, Spirit and Truth. Now, I could go forever on Spirit and Truth because that's the the quintessential text of the New Testament is John chapter four, the woman at the well. Um, 20 through 24, it's a definitive text. It's amazing. Jesus, in typical fashion, turns the world on its head and totally destroys everyone's expectations of worship. But what is important is as God, in the verse 24, he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is not Jesus saying God really likes it when you worship in spirit and truth. He's saying this is actually a requirement for it to happen, that without spirit and truth, it's not worship. It's not there. Second thing to note is that in spirit and truth, the truth gives us the outward parameters, the boundaries, and spirit gives us the inward component. Now, rather than going into spirit and truth, you could spend forever doing that. I want to take a look at some dangers of what happens when one is not present. Did you know that the very first murder was over worship? (laughs) Worship wars. The struggle is real. Okay? The very first murder was over worship. Cain and Abel. Cain offered the fruits of the field. Abel offered the fruits of the flock. God accepted one and not the other. And we often say, like, man, why, God, why did you accept Abel's and not Cain's? Like, it was, it was cool, too, you know. And I've heard it said a lot of times that it was because Abel offered blood and Cain just offered grain. That's not true because both of those are required sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. You have whole feasts that are dedicated, the Feast of Weeks and the, the Harvest and the Feast of Firstfruits. That are, those are commanded to offer these grains and offerings. So it's not because of that. It was the inward component. It was how Cain offered his offering. And I think the book of Hebrews uh, agrees with me. Hebrews eleven four says, By faith Abel off, uh, brought God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. It wasn't that Cain offered produce. It was how he did it. It was all hinged on the inner component by faith. Now, In worshiping without spirit, the book of Malachi is an excellent example of cold worship. Here in the history of Israel, we have Israel being brought out of captivity. God has put them back in Jerusalem. The second temple has been built. And 60, 70, 100 years after, the priests have gotten very casual in their worship. Uh, They're bringing in the sick and the lame and the poor. And they're like, "Eh, it's good enough for God. Come on, bring it, burn it. Let's go. Let's go. Anything's available. And God lets them have it. God lets him have it because he says, to value anything below than what I am is false worship. You need to understand that I am a great king. Why don't you go offer that sick lamb to your governor and see if he doesn't have your head? Oh, no, he wouldn't accept it? Then why would I accept it? Do not bring me cheap worship. You bring me your best because I have given you my best. I gave you my son. Now, inside this, you can almost hear God just you know, just frustrated in Malachi because he's like, you're marrying non-Israelites who are bringing in their other gods and you're bowing the knee to them. Why are you worshiping them? Why are you going to him? It's like a husband going to his wife. He's like, why are you going to him? He doesn't even love you. He hates you. He's only seducing you so that you can get to me. Why are you going to him? He doesn't love you. I love you. And I'm trying. I've even given you through the exile. I've let you go just to show you that there's nothing outside that will fulfill you. I am your portion. I will fulfill you. I love you. I will give myself for you. You will be my bride and my wife. Why are you going out there? There's nothing. He hates you. It's a trick. Don't fall for it. You hear God pleading in the book of Malachi but I'm not gonna let you get away, I'm not gonna let you go, I'll get you back. You watch, I'll get you back. That's what he says to us. Truth, worshiping without truth is dangerous on many levels. First is it's the outer boundary of which inside what is true we can worship, but anything that's outside of that is not true, thereby it is a lie, and when we worship a lie, we have a word for that, don't we? We've talked about it a lot already, it's called idolatry. We worship outside of the truth. Worship must be done in spirit and in truth. Lastly, worship must be done with praise. Psalm one hundred four to five says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Worship, praise accompanies worship. Praise is not worship we see that? As we close today, I want to kind of put two questions before us. Can you praise something without truly worshiping it? I think the answer is yes. Or turn it around backwards. Can you truly worship something and not talk about it and not praise it? C.S. Lewis says, in any area of life, one naturally praises what one appreciates. In fact, the praise is a part of the enjoyment. It does not matter whether it's sports, flowers, sunsets, children, cars, great books, or anything else. To enjoy something fully, one must speak of it. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, God, we came to you today to worship our God together. As a family, we came to corporately sing your praises, declare your goodness, celebrate your grace as a family. We came to gladly receive the word by the preaching of your truths. We came to give offerings and sacrifices worthy of your majesty. We came to give and receive prayer and we want to come here every week not as the abrogation but as a continuation of our week as we daily serve you, Latreia, and worship you, Proscaneo, so that we can come back next week and see and celebrate all that you have done both in the week behind and what you're going to do in the week to come. And in today's worship service, may you be honored both in our worship and in our service. In Christ's name, amen.